Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting edge, state of the art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Vas Bednar, Executive Director of the Master of Public Policy Program in Digital Society at McMaster University. Hello. Hey. Vas, today on the show, if Canada is really just three telecom toddlers in a trench coat, the kid on top just soiled himself. Also, they put reporters in cages, don't they? How to avoid being a tool when covering politicians who act like tools, the Pierre Polyev edition. Welcome to Shortcuts, where we're going to talk shit about the news. This episode of the show is brought to everybody by Natalie Giselle, Andrea Tilly, Tim Greenwood, Ashley Austin, Rachel Taylor, Rhonda Welsh, Sarah Marsh, and Bryce. I'm Bryce, and I'm a Cape Bretoner in Atlanta, and I support Canada Land because as someone who makes his living as a college media advisor... I believe it provides an example of how you can produce quality, independent journalism on the financial engine of supporters who really want it. I love the backbench for providing a true cross-country perspective of Parliament and shortcuts, because if you can't talk shit about the news, you shouldn't produce the news. 
people are still looking for answers after last Friday's Rogers outage. The Rogers outage dials up demands for accountability and better reliability. Ottawa demands answers from the telecoms, but are the solutions enough? Canada's three telecoms in a trench coat. Vast, did it hit you? Were you affected? I mean, a little bit. My phone was bricked. It's with Rogers, but I'm one of those clients that I guess inadvertently has diversified. So I was working from home and my home internet is Bell. So I was able to email and scroll Twitter to my heart's content that day. Oh, good, good, good to hear that. I mean, a lot of people, like, they do really aggressively push the bundling. So if you're on one, there's there were many, many, many people who like everything was on Rogers and they lost everything. And they and some people couldn't call 911 if they wanted to. And then like things that I wouldn't even know were affected, like Intrac or like, oh, yeah, Arrive can. I probably should disclose I'm on Oxio, which is a sponsor of the show. So, you know, we are in business with one of Rogers competitors as a disclosure here. But Oxio happens to piggyback Rogers infrastructure in my neck of the woods. So we did lose internet, but not cell phone service. Your landline is probably digital too. This was like five days for some people. This was very major stuff. E-transfers businesses had to shut down or take cash. God forbid you lose TV. Like like I said, you lose 911. Pornography access plummeted nationwide. This was serious. This was bad. Some child cares were actually also closed. I heard from a friend that their child care requires that they have emergency services access. So because they didn't have it, they actually sent kids home. So on top of all that, she couldn't work. She didn't, they didn't have access, right, to the infrastructure. And then their kid came home from daycare. I feel like that's like a missing glitch, too. Yeah, it, it was a moment where you kind of realize just how reliant we've become and just how wired like, and how so many physical things now require digital backbone and how we've put everything in one basket and that basket can break. Terrifying. Let's look at how the media covered the Rogers sure. uh, outage, which a lot of people might have missed because they had no fucking internet. We'll start with a CBC story. So yeah, when people lose access to emergency services, that does become like a life or death situation, potentially. Hamilton man was unable to call 911 during Roger's outage as sister was dying. But Shane Ebby says that Aunt Linda's aneurysm likely would have been fatal even if he was able to call 911. So I guess there's that. We probably still don't know yet the full human impact of this. No, I've been chatting with a few people about 911. Apparently there was a spike in calls, but many of those might have been attempted calls, so people checking if their cell phones worked. There was a bit of an old wives' tale I heard that if you remove the SIM card from your bricked cell phone, you are able to call 911. Your point earlier about the landlines I think is really critical. A lot of people mistakenly thought that a landline is immune to the kind of shock from the outage we saw, but that's not the case. Yeah, I think people got landlines thinking that these were analog because they don't trust digital technology, but joke's on them, right? Well, the joke's also on them with their landline because most people get landlines because they're a little bit forced into it from that bundling that you mentioned, right? There's an incentive for the companies to push people to get a landline as well because then in the statistics, it shows that people, you know, kind of want a landline. So it's actually cheaper to have home internet, a cell phone, and I guess television if you sometimes also throw in a landline. That's a weird thing to me. Yeah. I mean, we'll get to it, but the same selling point that these telecoms give to the consumer is the one they give to the government, which is like, it's actually better if there's one person taking care of all this. It's cheaper, except if one goes down, it all goes down. More coverage here. Here is uh, a global news story. Roger's stock tumbles after outage raises concerns over Shaw merger. 
Well, that obviously was the worst thing that could possibly happen is that Roger's stock took a hit. That was not coverage that I felt was, I mean, I, I guess that matters for people following business stuff. I think their stock is only $1 less than the price point it was at when the merger was announced. If you kind of anchor that way, it's not actually as significant a hit as it might seem from the outage. You know why? No, why? I don't really know okay. why, but I'm going to guess, I'm going to act like I know why. Because the people who follow this stuff know that everybody gets really upset about stuff for a second, and they act like they care, and they act like it's going to threaten the merger, but the merger's going to go through, and we'll talk about that later. CBC did, I think, go uh, in this news story to the critical issue here. Rogers' outage points to need for greater oversight of critical industry. That is how we should be thinking about this. But it was also interesting to see how Rogers itself handled uh, this as it was playing out from a crisis communication standpoint. I'm sure it was like a drawing the short straw, like, which executive is going to actually go on the air to face the public wrath. And it was decided, uh, at least in this one interview, Vashi Capellos, CBC anchor, had Rogers Senior Vice President Kai Prigg on. That was the poor bastard who got uh, hauled on the air. And I want to play exactly how that just completely flamed out for Kai Prigg when Vashi asked the correct question. He was on there giving the corporate line. You're lucky that I'm even talking to you because we're working so hard to get services back up. And Vashi was saying like, well, isn't this what happens when you guys get a monopoly, which you've been lobbying on for years? This is how the rest of that sounded. I can't talk about the monopolization in Canada right now. I'm focused on the recovery efforts, as you can imagine, right? So you're, you're keeping I, me I'm from sorry, the incident room. So. Right now. Yes. Yes. Okay. I do understand that, sir. I'm just asking on behalf of Canadians. Thank you. That was something. I assume that was the voice you heard there of, I don't know, a Rogers lawyer or a very incompetent crisis PR person who shut down that interview on live television. <laughs> because why? Because he was asked the right question and we cannot have you answering that question. So they certainly looked like completely caught unawares by this. And I found that comical. I found it comical, too. I mean, I think it's a question a lot of Canadians are still asking, which is a positive outcome of the Rogers outage, which, yes, I sometimes try to refer to as Red Friday because I want to make it less about the company and more about the issues. But the company's color is red. Perfect, right? You still got that kind of vague allusion to Rogers, but we can get beyond that. But speaking of Rogers and the merger, I mean, were it to go forward, and it looks like, you know, most analysts are saying it likely will, despite the competition commissioner recommending a full block. I wondered, where's Ed Rogers in all of this? Because the way his shares work as well, you know, with this merger, they'd have about 40% of the telecommunications market in Canada. The Ed Rogers saga, like, how are things going, Ed? I mean, since he ousted the former CEO and successfully installed his CEO, and like you say, his personal wealth is tied to the stock, and that stock has been lagging compared to other telecom giants, and what a shit show. We did an episode of People Are Curious About the Rogers Family Drama that I think covers this whole thing, but since then, of course, the matriarch has passed, and I just don't want to pretend there is an element of performance in the media coverage of like, well, now the merger's in jeopardy and now the government is, we're very mad at you, Rogers. And some of it seems really reasonable. Like, okay, let's just have a practical thing where we get all the other telecoms into a room and let's let's get some redundancy going here. So the next time this happens, and there will be a next time because there was a last time. If your Rogers gets knocked off, like, yes, please, like have my cell phone start to get service at least 911 service, but hopefully everything from Bell. And then like, you know, Rogers can pay Bell back for that later. Instead of, like, giving me a five-day, like, reimbursement if I, like, fill out the paperwork, which no one's going to do. So that just seems like a critical infrastructure question. But what I 
react skeptically towards is this idea that like for 24 hours, we're going to get serious about the telecom. And we're not. And this isn't just about Rogers. This is about the basic relationship that Canada has with these big companies. Because it's not just the telecoms in the trench coat. Like every now and then we see the man behind the curtain and it's a bank in the trench coat with a telecom. And like, what the fuck? Air Canada. Grocers, Cineplex. Let's talk about grocers for a sec. There's a series of things where we're seeing like the the flimsy tissue where we pretend that we're a real grown-up country. Like we just learned that the Westons exploited inflation amid a pandemic, but like they exploited the inflation to hike prices beyond the – like, oh, the consumer is used to everything getting expensive and they accept that that's sort of outside of everybody's control. Great opportunity to jack prices up even further, and no one will notice, uh, except for Marco Chownovit at the Toronto Star. God bless him. And this comes after we learned they were like colluding with other grocers to fix the price of bread. A self-respecting country burns in effigy, if not physically, grocers who like you don't fix the price of bread when people are suffering. But like we're not going to do anything because that's not the relationship between the public and companies or the government and companies. And the government pretends that they're going to do something. They're not going to do anything. I think the government is getting closer to doing something. But I also think you're right that it feels a little bit more like a tidal wave when it comes to Canada being more aware of competition. Like when you talk about competition policy, I think it's easy to fall asleep like right away. But with the Marco Ovid story in, in the Toronto Star, I think people started to see, OK, these are the outcomes of a general lack of competition. This is what market power can do, right? Increase prices beyond the rate of inflation. And I do think Maybe this comes back to some of the reporting as well. In our minds, when we're reading about this inflationary period, maybe you think all prices, you know, are going up 7, 8, 9, 11 percent. But that's that kind of baseline average. And we see that there's the spike in groceries at the same time where these private firms are posting record profits. So where's that profit coming, right, if that margin isn't there between inflation? From us, and I think we'll take it. Because, like, if we're going to have, like, a reality-based conversation about what the greater problem is. It's a hangover from like, it's from the origin story. Like this was a company before it was a country. Like this was like a hat factory because, you know, beaver skin was in vogue. And okay, I guess we need some government here. What is the foundational act of our first prime minister was like a railroad, uh, you know, formed a company. And I think that it's the family compact shit where the actual deal is if we're able to tame this wilderness and actually have an airline, or a telephone company or or media, it is like only by this hand-in-hand participation of government and companies where there's a revolving door between the two. Like They are given special access, special support. It's almost like we have the worst of two worlds. We have the worst of the free market economy and the worst of nationalizing things. Like if we were to just nationalize it, we could consider these things utilities and just run them to work. And if we actually had real competition, maybe that would yield at least like the prices would probably be better for these mm-hmm. things. But it's like the same circumstances are affecting airlines all around the world. There are problems all around the world, but like Air Canada looks particularly bad. There are these pictures of like a room full of weeks of luggage where people have just abandoned their shit. Yeah. And what does Air Canada do? They're like, well, obviously we have shit the bed. We are currently shitting the bed. And we have no reason to believe that we are able to stop shitting the bed. So we're just going to cancel half our flights. And, okay, that's reasonable. Let's do that. There's a lot of poop in this episode. I mean, 
it does seem like a lack of competition or trending towards consolidation is a part of our heritage, right? There was also an op-ed about airlines that sort of tried to make the case that actually the real problem with airports are the people that want to support discount airlines, the people who dare to save a little bit of money to travel maybe once a year with their family. They're actually the ones that are making airports more complicated. But here's what's really going on. In Canada, we have privileged efficiency over almost everything else in our competition law. So it means with Air Canada, as they've had mergers to the extent that they do, and this reflects how private companies work too, right? Their priority is to return value to shareholders, not to invest in customer service, not to invest in their workforce. In fact, even with airports, there's a huge incentive to just have this just-in-time workforce where, you know, we kind of calculate with a shoddy AI when they'll be in demand and when when we need people. And then we're shocked later on when that bargain between employer and employee has eroded and that no one wants these jobs that sound like they could be terrible. And why are they terrible and why have they eroded so much? But the reason I think I reflected some optimism earlier is not just because of the great kind of monopoly memes I've been seeing online with my steady internet connection, but because We have a pretty great competition commissioner right now, and he made a great speech last year called Canada Needs More Competition. And he's not wrong. And we have been promised a comprehensive review of the Competition Act that has not launched yet. But that would kind of open the doors for Canada to have a wet, hot antitrust summer of our very own, because that's what's happening in the U.S. That's better than Red Friday. I hope you're right. But I just remember this from my own lens of of what happened with the Competition Bureau and media, which was such a farce where what does antitrust law exist for Mm -hmm. to prevent exactly what happened so blatantly? And people will remember that the two biggest competitors in the newspaper business, Post Media and Torstar, looked at the country and their failing industry and the markets that they were underserving and failing. And they said to each other, this is getting shittier for all of us. And neither of us seem to be able to do anything about it. So why should our Guelph newspaper fight with your Guelph newspaper? And why should our Kingston newspaper fight with your Kingston newspaper? Mm-hmm. You take Guelph, we'll take Kingston. Okay, that is explicitly, from my layman's understanding, what we have antitrust law like to, to, to prevent. That kind of carving up of a market for specifically anti-competitive purposes mm-hmm. that remove value from the population, from the consumer, from the newsreader, make it more expensive for advertisers. And the only beneficiary of that is the company. That's why we have antitrust laws. Mm -hmm. And their excuse was laughable. What they claimed was, oh, we didn't swap newspapers. It was like a cashless transaction. We didn't do that with the intention of killing news. Paul Godfrey said, we didn't even discuss killing newspapers. It was like a wink, wink, nudge, nudge of like, you give us your Guelph paper We'll give you our Kingston paper, and let's not discuss what we're going to do with them. And then they killed, like, 36 newspapers. And then the Competition Bureau made a very tough display. I've never seen anything like it. It was actually a little bit concerning. You had, like, Competition Bureau officers, competition – I don't know. They had their own, like, police – actually stormed the offices of Post Media and Torstar. And I was like, wow, maybe this was so blatant and so egregious. And so specifically, like if you're talking about like the public suffering, like, yeah, if you used to have two newspapers in your market, now you got one, like that's like you got fucked in that deal. Maybe they'll actually do something. And nothing happened. 
nothing happened. I think there was an academic article, I'll send you it, you'll have a laugh, that looked at the newspaper mergers and sort of concluded, they were like, maybe Canada doesn't actually understand how this is supposed to work. But there was an Ipsos poll from earlier this year that generally shows, like, Canadians agree we need more competition. I'm summarizing it. But it would be interesting to poll people on what do you think competition law is for, as you said, and then how looking at how it actually works right now in Canada, because I think you're hitting on that disconnect. And it's almost the same disconnect we see with the public interest and private interest with shareholders and the efficiency piece, right? So back to sources of optimism. Should we have them while we keep making those great memes? Because I need a steady stream of memes to keep me going. The current Competition Bureau posted a really kind of provocative policy piece. I know you said we were going to get wonky. Here's a little dip into it. Earlier this year, where even though they're the enforcer of the law, they don't write the policy, Mm -hmm. they just went kind of, I'll say balls out, but in like policy language, uh, with all of their recommendations on how the law could be improved in the digital age, which is pretty provocative because it means that essentially the commissioner and his team are saying, these are the ways the law needs to be improved so that we can better enforce it. And one of those things is actually, you know, not giving economic concept of efficiency premacy overall. You're asking great questions and raising exciting things. I think a lot about why isn't Canada doing better in this space? And it all comes down to a capacity problem too, right? Like this space is dominated by lawyers and economists who are not the most inclusive people. And we treat the lawyers, we elevate them as kind of the number one experts a lot of the time. And they know the law really well because they get paid to circumvent it and to advise companies on how their merger will go forward, et cetera. We don't talk to everyday people about it. We don't educate people. Even people coming out of policy schools and public administration programs don't have the literacy of what competition law is. I didn't really know a lot about it until about a year and a half ago when I Googled what is competition law and like agreed to write a paper about it. So as I've been learning about it, I've been trying to kind of take other people along with me and be like, isn't this weird? Like, look at this one simple trick in our law that lets like any merger go through. (laughs) Am I reading this correctly? Like, what do these words mean in this order? And a lot of the existing, to the extent that we have expertise, it's been privatized. It's consulting firms. So we don't have super robust consumer protection or consumer activism related to it. In terms of movement building that educates and orients everyday Canadians as to, you know, the baseline of how this works, the barrier to entry to talk about competition, I think is pretty high. And that's why you get people expressing their frustration and annoyance and making great jokes about how you can't buy your groceries at, you know, at the grocery oligopoly because of the banking oligopoly with Interact and the telecom oligopoly. I think Red Friday has given some momentum for people to think about this critical piece of economic law and how it can be better in Canada. Red Friday, going to help you make it happen. Thanks. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I'm not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool. doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? 
Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. Fast, we duly note stories that need to be talked about more than perhaps they have. I'm going to start a story that does not need more exposure was this terrifying story in the Thai that went viral. Get ready for the forever plague. Holy shit. Public health officials' COVID complacency has opened the door to new illnesses and devastating long-term damage just when you thought you were out. This is a story that went wide around the world, actually, and it had the most terrifying picture. Here's how Slate put it. This week, a very scary-sounding article went viral, Get Ready for the Forever Plague, accompanied by a picture of an equally scary crow-faced plague doctor in a hoodie. Quoting from the piece, Just one infection can destabilize your immune system and age it by 10 years. The journalist wrote, as a consequence, it is now possible to be reinfected with one of Omicron's variants every two to three weeks, and each reinfection confers no immunities. You get a new COVID every three weeks, and every time you do, your immune system <laughs> dies by 10 years. And Slate writes, let's get this out of the way. None of that is true. And this piece was excoriated. It was taken apart piece by piece by piece. It is scaremongering with bits of truth. There's still a lot to be concerned about with uh, this ongoing pandemic. But no, this the forever plague, as described by this scary article, is false. Like a lot of these stories that go viral, the scary story was shared much more widely than the blowback, and certainly more widely than, what I'm going to duly note is, the author of the piece, Andrew Nikoforik, ran a, not a mea culpa, a response. He followed up. And he was defiant. And that's what I want to duly note. Here's what he wrote in the Tai after he just got slammed all around the world. He writes, as a journalist, my job is not to sugarcoat reality, to cheerlead for the status quo or to defend the powerful. My responsibility is to put emerging trends on everybody's radar. And my latest article, Get Ready for the Forever Plague, did just that. All right, buddy. Uh, good for you. 
Duly noted. Vass, what would you like to duly note? I would like to duly note a very small article that appeared in the Globe and Mail entitled Resolute Forest Producer Acquired by Paper Excellence in $2.7 Billion Deal. I think that investment reporting is a really cool place to learn about competition. There was this quote, this speaks to the competitiveness and attractiveness of Canada's forestry sector. And I couple that with something Ken White wrote, our book's about to disappear. Mm -hmm. So the price of paper is going up. This has implications for publishers of all sizes, but especially small independent publishers that we see eroding, especially in Canada. And there's another major merger that Canada might be reviewing, and that's the Penguin Random House, Simon & Schuster merger. So just to bring it, you know, to competition and books and price, there are these massive knock-on effects when we allow consolidation across supply chains as well that then hurt everyday Canadians if you want to buy a book, if you're still buying books. Well, I guess the consolidation of every single book publisher into one means when it becomes too expensive to publish books anymore, that'll only hurt one company. Yay. (laughs) Duly noted. I have one more thing to duly note. I would like to duly note an important national news story hmm. that listeners might have missed. This is news. Extra, extra. Justin Trudeau was not punched in the face of the Calgary Stampede. That's not actually how the headline read, but that I think is what the piece that's become pretty controversial was trying to communicate. Like, I'm trying to figure like, why was this news story reported? Like, what was newsworthy about this thing that got reported? And I'll, and I'll tell you what it, the actual headline in a moment. But as you get into it, you know, I, I think that's probably what motivated this. The idea like, you know, he wasn't punched in the face. He might have been, you know, he, he wore a Justin Trudeau costume. He had on a big cowboy hat and a comically large, shiny belt buckle. And then he went to Calgary, but nobody punched him, which by the way, I approve of. I, I'm glad nobody punched him. So I think that it is that lack of the punch to the nose that inspired the headline that ran. And the headline that ran was, Trudeau greeted by throngs of admirers at Calgary Stampede events. And this story went viral when I think conservatives largely questioned its veracity. I mean, and nothing could look more like a piece of candy from the Justin Journos, the bought and paid for press then, like, why is it a news story that he was greeted by throngs of admirers? And was he greeted by throngs of admirers? Like, he was greeted by throngs of admirers? And as critics of this piece dug into it, these Calgary Stampede events, so-called Calgary Stampede events, included an off-site by invitation. Like a meet and greet? Yeah, it was, like, in a parking lot where it was, like, Liberal Party supporters and fundraisers were invited to come meet the Prime Minister. Yeah. And it was, like, I guess tangentially a Calgary Stampede event, but, like, if the picture of him at the stampede, like, like you thought that he was celebrated and welcomed lovingly at the actual Calgary stampede, the story seemed like a lie. And another was like a pancake breakfast with like the one liberal MP in, in Calgary. Again, it was like a very curated event. So like if you invite the Albertans who support the liberals and then their big celebrity Justin Trudeau is there, I guess he's greeted by throngs of admirers. But to report a news story that uh, he was beloved at the Calgary stampede seemed like just a complete lie. I think that that was overblown, too, because there was a visit to, like, the main event where he was amongst the hoi polloi and where I guess largely it was positive and people were glad to see him. And and it is funny when you actually dig into the story to read what happened when he was actually at the Calgary Stampede. I'll read from the article here. At least one man was overheard saying, oh, it's Justin Trudeau. I want to punch him in the face before walking away. 
Another woman said Trudeau wasn't her favorite, but it was great that he took the time to visit the stampede. One man could be heard yelling, Prime Minister Trudeau, you're a tyrant and you're a failure. So he certainly wasn't universally beset by admirers, but like, I guess what the story is about is like, despite these people, he didn't punch him in the face and it was largely friendly. So, you know, news. Or somebody sort of pseudo punched themselves in the face. I mean, look, I hear that as a competition issue, right? The initial story was self-preferencing of sorts. Whoever pitched that story, when you're in a kind of self-selected audience that you might be adored by, it seems like maybe somebody pitched that out or it was kind of like one of those things that gets picked up on the wire. But I'm glad you honed in on the kind of nuance there in terms of what was initially reported. I'm getting a sense that you're kind of this, like, freaky competition fetishist. I'm actually trying to remind people that I have an intellectual flexibility where I can write about other issues, but I'm kind of caught up right now in it. No, I'm into it. I'll, I'm okay. seeing the world through your lens here, and it's working yeah. for me. duly noted. Some Canadian politicians have been getting closer with the far right, and experts are getting concerned. Experts are concerned. They're getting concerned. So that's a new story from... Global reporter Rachel Gilmore, the experts are getting concerned. The Canadian politicians are getting closer with the far right. That was the TikTok version of a story that's become really controversial, Vass. And if I lay out the order of events here, it seems that what happened was Rachel Gilmore was working on a story about stuff that happened a while ago, like the fact that Pierre Polyev has this weird, hazy, he won't tell you exactly how much support for Freedom Convoy people is, of course, a month's old story. But it's one of these weird things where you can almost kind of like decide when a news story happens by just like, all right, I found some experts who are concerned. So like we'll, we'll hinge this story on the, the concern of these experts. And then you do your thing as a reporter and you ask Pierre Polyev for comment on this concern. And the questions that got sent included questions to the Polyev team does Mr. Polyev feel he has a responsibility to distance himself from movements that call for actions that violate Canadian law and principles of our democracy? Does Mr. Polyev condemn white supremacy? And the Polyev team, or Polyev himself, looked at these questions and I guess concluded that there's not much to be gained by answering them the way a politician traditionally would and say, of, of course, I condemn white supremacy, but blah, 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 blah. That's a position that I guess they felt was not politically advantageous. And instead, they leveraged these questions into kind of like publicly flaming global news. And Polyev didn't single out Rachel Gilmore. They're, they're actually quite shrewd in how they do shitty things. But he went on Twitter and said, no wonder trust in the media is at an all-time low. One of Global News' so-called journalists decided to smear me and thousands of other Canadians because we criticized the federal government's unscientific and discriminatory vaccine mandates. Here's my campaign's response to this attack, and then posted like this full statement of how the fix was in with this piece. The next chapter of this narrative is that predictable elements of Twitter were appalled that this is how a politician would respond to a journalist just doing their job. And, of course, journalists were upset and concerned for Rachel Gilmore being attacked by Pierre Polyev fans, and fair enough, I believe she was. But there were also a number of supportive comments for Rachel Gilmore from 
politicians on the other side of things. Jagmeet Singh, Rachel Gilmore is a professional and objective journalist who, to the ire of the extreme right, is doing her job. So he stands up for Rachel Gilmore, but like gets to kind of take a swipe at Parapolyev and define him as extreme right. Jerry Butts, no longer with the PMO, but you know, with the PMO, tweets, for the it can't happen here crowd, do you think Polyev sent this before or after his fundraiser hosted for him by a guy who advocates hanging environmentalists for treason? We also saw Bob Ray, liberal emeritus, take a stand for Rachel Gilmore. And essentially what you had was I stand with Rachel Gilmore, liberals and NDP, and Rachel Gilmore is a hack or all kinds of terrible words I won't describe, conservative Polyev fans. And this one reporter in this one news organization very quickly got politicized. I guess what I want to say about that is we have to smarten the fuck up as reporters, as journalists. When we're thinking about a story like like that story, and I'm not going to say like, oh, we shouldn't run stories like that. But like, I think that newsreaders are correct to be skeptical of these experts agree story because it is a way that reporters can essentially take what probably should be an analysis piece where, you know, like, well, who's concerned about the ties between Polyev and the far right? Maybe you are, and maybe you should write an opinion piece about that. But to present it as news because experts are concerned is something that I think people are kind of getting hip to. And it fuels a certain distrust of media. But more than that, more than that, this condemnation of Polyev for not just answering the questions. That's what a lot of people said. Why don't you just answer the questions? Like, let's not kid ourselves that politicians ever answered reporters' questions because of principle you know, because they respected the role of reporters. That's not why reporters got replies. Like what would happen before would be the Polyev's team would look at this and they would say, okay, this is obviously going to be a negative story about us. So what do we do here? Do we ignore the specific questions and just provide a statement to the reporter? Or do we go to a different news source that's going to be friendlier and uh, try to deal with it that way? So at least we can say, no, we, we, we answered questions, but you know, we don't, we can't answer every question. There was a playbook and that playbook has changed because we don't have power anymore. I mean, the reason they answered our questions is because we had power. We are more useful to Polyev as a punching bag, as a partisan mechanism, as a tool, than we are as a power vector that has to be massaged and managed and dealt with because the press has power to define you and to describe you that you don't have. And I'm specifically saying when I say we have to like – recognize which playbook he's playing from. He's playing from the Trump playbook. I'm not saying that he's Trump, but we saw how Trump put reporters in cages at his events for their own protection and then said to his crowds, the lying media, and they would ask him questions and he would use those questions to prove just how in the tank and biased the media was. And he succeeded in, A, making it incredibly difficult to be a reporter and do the reporter's job. But also, reporters got their backs up and started, like, fighting back against Trump in a way that was like – and then people on the other side of the political spectrum started to embrace those reporters and say, I defend journalists' rights. And very quickly, you had, like, reporting and journalism – like, the, the allegation that they were in the tank for the left became true. Right. You know, like, they actually became in a fight against Trump in partnership with Democrats. And we can – Pretend that we've seen that in Canada before, Kevin O'Leary or Kelly Leach, or, but we haven't seen a serious candidate who actually might win play from that playbook. And I think we just have to, like, now is the time to realize that the rules have changed. 
So it sounds like the media might have trouble holding Pierre to account because that seemed like, what was the expectation there with those questions, right? Obviously, that bargain has eroded in terms of politicians answering consistently or even factually, right? Of course, as you pointed out, often political communication is not really saying anything, the art of not saying anything. Back to our Rogers friend with the lanyard who was cut off. He yeah, maybe wasn't the trade enough. you wish you were asked. Exactly. Like, those are the old tricks. Now, it's the, now you can just lie, you know? Yeah. And to your point about analysis, I mean, my read of that piece, I was really intrigued by a smaller point in that article, which seemed to be that we have an assumption if a politician meets with someone, they endorse them. And Pierre played with that in his statement, which I did read, to sort of say, well, I've met with Justin Trudeau before, but it doesn't mean that, you know, we're BFFs or something. Yeah, good point, Vass. And and here's, I'll read from the Polyev statement where they talk about that. For example, Mr. Polyev has met with Justin Trudeau. This does not make Mr. Polyev responsible for Trudeau's many racist outbursts, including dressing up in racist costumes and mistreating visible minorities in his own party. He can flip this because he's thought this through. Because that's his job. That could be interesting for us to explore more as Canadians. Are there groups or people or individuals that should not be heard, you know, in the flesh by anyone? And then if that is our expectation, you know, is that democratic? Or are we implicitly arguing for the icing out of some subset of the population that they should never be able to express their views, however kind of odious or polarizing they might be. Because if you meet with them, you endorse them. Like you and I have met now. You don't necessarily endorse every idea I've ever written and things like that, right? I mean, you might, actually. Polyev is a shrewd motherfucker. And he can anticipate these debates and these moves and how it's going to play out. And he was very purposeful and strategic with the extent to which he associated himself with those people. And how strongly he hit back when asked. Exactly. And he can anticipate the questions. You always want to get your opponent in a situation where they're revealing their bias or seem to be revealing their bias by drawing these conclusions. Like, Mm. how dare you walk with that person? And Polyev can very easily take the position of like, hey, our prime minister is the guy who says that anybody against me is a racist and, and deplorable. I talk to Canadians. I'm walking with Canadians. You want to say that that makes me an X, Y, or Z? Well, you're just showing me that you're in the tank, blah, blah, blah. Like, I'm not going to call the guy a genius, you know, because this stuff is not that complicated. So I don't know, Vass. I say all these things in, like, the dog days of summer with an eye towards all of the coverage to come. Maybe it's a time to look at the playbook and, like, try to figure out what the fuck we're doing. Or write a new playbook. Vass, that is Shortcuts this week. Thank you so much. Thank you for coming into the studio. It's so nice to have a co-host in person. It's great to see the other person you're speaking to when you record something. Thanks for having me. If you want to support us, uh, you can go to CanadaLand.com slash join or click the link in the show notes. We rely on your support. We're on Twitter at CanadaLand. I can be emailed at jesse at CanadaLand.com and I read everything that you send me. Vass Bedner, where can people find you? I'm on Twitter at VassB and I write regs to riches uh, with the number two in the URL. Prince Syntax. Check it out. Regs to Riches. It's worth your time. This episode is produced by Aviva Lassard with additional production by Tristan Capicione. Our managing editor is Kieran Oudshorn. Our theme music is by So Called. Syndication is by CFUV, 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. Hey, if you like what we do, once again, you can receive ad-free versions and other stuff when you go to candleland.com slash join or click the link in the show notes. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.